I love Super Study. It's good to be here on a Friday night, and I'm eager to see how God uses this topic, a topic that probably is not one that you would think would be very theological or doctrinal or, you know, a lot of Bible stuff. Uh, You think of things like the Trinity or, I don't know, predestination, or you think about the nature of Jesus. You think of something like that, and you think that's that's a Bible thing. And I wonder if you think about friendship that way as something that God is deeply concerned about. But I do know that you're concerned about it. I know that it's something that you've been concerned about your entire life. And it makes sense that if it's something that's that important in the inner life of a human being, that longing for relationship, that longing to know and be known, that must be something that God put there and something that God speaks of in His Word. You probably don't know much about baby ATD, and you don't really need to know much about him, but I will tell you this, for every year growing up uh, in elementary school, I moved, my family moved every single year. And my dad had, had that kind of a job that moved us around a lot, and we moved all over the western United States. And so I distinctly remember, even as a little kid, what it was like to stand in a brand new cafeteria and wonder who I would sit with. And that experience is one that I think you probably understand. It didn't have to be repeated every year for you, but we all had seasons of life when we were a new person, when we were an outsider, when we didn't know who would be our friend. And some of you have lots and lots of friends, and some of you have very few. And some of you have relationships that are deep and meaningful, and some of you have friendships that are superficial. And I want you to know something, and I want to reassure you of something, that God's Word has great help for you in thinking rightly about friendship. Uh, The sweetest and best memories that I have in my life involve other people. Uh, namely, my precious wife. And I think of, when I think of the sweetest times in my life, uh, it's rarely the times when I was all by myself. It was when I was with my favorite people, the people who know us best, the people we laugh with, the people we share life together with. And so I hope you could see why this topic is worthy of an entire month of four messages uh, that we'll consider. And you'll hear from different people, not just me. I'll I'll, I'll crack the egg and then other people can make souffles and stuff. But uh, I think it's worth a month. Uh, C.S. Lewis, one of my my heroes, um, and my love for Lewis has only been elevated by the persecution of him in my ministry here at Grace Church. So uh, C.S. Lewis, my my absolute rock-solid hero uh, on on every topic. He, He called friendship, the greatest of worldly goods, the greatest of worldly goods. What's your most valuable possession? You got a baseball card worth a lot of money? 
You've got a car that you fixed up. C.S. Lewis says the greatest of worldly goods is friendship. He also calls friendship the chief happiness of life. And the more I started looking into this topic, the more I realized there's lots and lots written about it. And recently, there's a good book that a man named Drew Hunter wrote in 2018 called Made for Friendship. I highly recommend it. Joey will sell you a copy next week. Um, I found essays and articles on friendship, and and I didn't find anything quite as good as as Drew Hunter's book, but I found some old stuff as well, and I'll, I'll be drawing from that in this in this deal. Um, J.C. Ryle, who I I love probably a little bit more than C.S. Lewis, but it's just not as provocative. Uh, he said the world is full of sorrow because it's full of sin. It's a dark place. It's a lonely place. It's a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Friendship halves our sorrows and doubles our joys. Friendship has this incredible ability to cut our sorrows, our troubles in half, and to take the joys and pleasures of life and to increase them exponentially. Jesus had friends. Jesus was a friend. And to know that we're made for friendship, as Drew Hunter's book titles it, uh, the relationship that halves our sorrows and doubles our joys, that's the, the Ryle quote, just reminds us how important friendship needs to be to us. And as in any topic in our lives, we want to have God's perspective on it. And I don't think you even have to be a Christian to, to admit that you don't want to have bad friendships. You don't want to have moderate friendships. You don't want to have disposable friendships. Uh, this familiar topic is one I think we just haven't carefully thought about enough. And so what I want you to do this month is think about your friends and think about how you consider friendship how much you value it, how much you've studied it or, or asked good questions about it, how much you've asked God to lead you in this area of your life that's so important. Everybody longs to be less lonely and more intimate with true friends that we can count on. And I don't think that there's a more urgent need among us today, especially as the world is increasingly anti-Christian in its perspective for you to have a friend that you can walk with and that you can confide in and that can help you, a friend that will be with you through thick and thin to the glory of God. Its friendship is really going to be increasingly, and I think this is what Jesus promised us, one of the ways that the world will know that we're different as Christians, right? Didn't Jesus say, They'll, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Well, what is that? Well, it's friendship. Jesus himself, the friend of sinners, by the way, John 13, not only thinks of us as his friends, but redefines our relationship to him in terms of friendship. So there, there's so much here. Let me give you a thesis statement here, thesis statement for tonight. You were created for friendship. You are created for friendship. It is the main goal of your life. Now, some of you don't agree with that. It's, you think it's overstatement, classic Duncan overstatement. And you don't like it because you like the Heidelberg Catechism. 
And the Heidelberg Catechism says that the chief aim of life is to... I knew you were in here, Heidelberg man. (laughs) To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I think every Sunday school visitor would say... The the purpose of life is not friendship, it's to glorify God. But listen to me, friendship, I think, is the ultimate end of our existence. And I think I can prove it to you because Jesus was a man of friendship. He was, John 13, a friend to sinners. And he defines what he did on the cross, which is that singular act of redemption that reversed the course of the fall, that redeemed a people for himself, that ultimately brings God glory and brings the entire story of human history to glorious consummation. Eventually, he said about his friends that that he no longer calls them slaves, but he calls them friends in John 15. Add to that that the wisest man in the world, Solomon, teaches us more about friendship than he does about power or influence or governance or a thousand other topics the Proverbs consider. In fact, he thinks friendship, according to the Proverbs, is one of the most powerful and influential topics that he has before us. We're reminded in the Bible that our friends are the ones, and this happens so often in the Gospels, that can bring you to the Savior And we're reminded in the Proverbs that your friends can be the ones that betray you and let you down. They can ruin you and lead you to hell. Your friends can either make you better and encourage you and hold you up through the hardest parts of your life. And when you reach the end of your life, it's not going to be the money that you have in your bank account or how beautiful your house is or your career or your accomplishments Those are not the things that will surround you and compose your sweetest memories. When you are on your deathbed, my friend, you will want to be surrounded by those most dear to you. It is your friends that will define you and shape you and be with you in your hardest times because relationships are everything. Friendship touches every single part of your life. You know this. Your years in school prove this to be true, sometimes painfully true. Other times, it was the the highlight of your years in school. Your your family and those relationships with your family need to be thought of in terms of friendship, in terms of relationship. Uh, Marriage, whether you're close or far, or whether it's like a thug with a gun, you don't know when it's going to sneak up on you, needs to be thought of ultimately as a friendship before it's anything else because that's ultimately what it will be in its highest realization. Your work life, your vocation, your career, uh, these things will be touched and influenced and impacted. All of our lives are touched by friendship. So that's my, my thesis, is you're created for friendship. It's the main goal of your life, and God intends it to be that way. Let me cover this in two headings. Two headings, and we'll use Bible sporadically throughout. Neglect and need, okay? The neglect of friendship and the need for friendship. And we're talking about true friendship here, but I, I think I have to 
underline and emphasize that there actually is a problem in our society. And the more research I did on this topic, the more I realized this to be true. Uh, What is the problem? Well, I think I addressed it a little bit. I don't think we've thought very much about being friends. I don't think we've thought very much about how important it is or, or what the Bible says. We haven't carefully considered friendship and what friendship means. John 15, for example would be, I think, a very, a very meaningless statement if we didn't have a deep understanding of friendship. I referred to this verse earlier, John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I've loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You, Jesus says, are my friends if you do what I command you. I no longer call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my father, I've been made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would abide, so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. This command, this I command you, that you love one another. Jesus defines his relationship to his disciples and their relationship to one another in the terminology of a loving friendship. And so it's not an option to neglect this topic. But today, friendship is in sharp decline. And we can think of a lot of reasons for that, but um, I want to get to, to some of those reasons tonight uh, but as we think about the, the need for friendship and, and why we need to, well, or the neglect of friendship, I, I want you to think through this with me. This is a report from something called the Joe Cox Commission on Loneliness. What a depressing organization. Uh, more than 900 people in Britain were surveyed. Around 14% of the population uh, responded to this survey and said they often or always feel lonely. Well, that, that's probably not unusual to any of us if we were asked You know, on any week, there's probably times in the week that we feel lonely. But do you often or always feel lonely? In Japan, there's something called lonely deaths, and they have a word for this uh, among the elderly. It's called kodushkushi. I said that perfectly. Uh, A 2010 survey suggested more than a third of American citizens over the age of 45 feel lonely. Uh, a few years ago, U.S. Surgeon General uh, Murthy called loneliness a growing health epidemic. And in the Harvard Business Review essay, cited a study that social isolation is associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Uh, I mean, loneliness, a lack of friendship, is a problem, and you don't need to ask the Bible that question. It's true in our society. People are increasingly isolated and increasingly alone. And there's been lots of reasons that that they put forward for that, things like uh, the proliferation of technology. You can be connected yet not connected. Uh, You can be with people online but never actually in their physical presence or proximity. Uh, they talk about the, the way people move now uh, for their careers or for school without regard for the relationships that will be uh, torn apart through 
this dislocation and transient kind of nature of society today because it's, it's much easier to move than it was in the days of the Dust Bowl or something like that. And so all of these kind of changes in society have led to uh, a more pronounced and concerning trend of, of loneliness. And so I want you to think about your life, not in terms of surveys or in terms of trends or, or that sort of thing, but is your life you know, more like uh, a life lived in, in isolation or is your life a life lived in community? And this, this is the, the pressing question because it becomes crystal clear to us that not having those relationships can not only hurt us and harm us, but it's not for our ultimate benefit, and then it can actually cause us significant trouble in our lives. Uh, I read a little bit about the penitentiary system, um, hopefully not in preparation, but I, I just, I was, I'm interested in all kinds of things, and you know, it was the Quakers, you know, the people who make the oats, it was the Quakers who invented the penitentiary system. And that's why it has the word penitent in it, right? The idea behind the penitentiary system is it would make people be sorry. So, uh, you know, it would lead them to repentance. And uh, you, you don't call it that. You call it the clink or the lockup or the pokey or the slammer, my fellow young people. Um, so whatever it is, there, there's, it's to be locked up is a terrible thing, um, but there's something worse than being locked up. And there's something inside of the prison system that's a prison within the prison, right? Like if you're in prison and you get in worse trouble because of violence or, or some egregious offense, where do they put you? Let's put you in solitary, right? You've seen Shawshank. So it puts you in solitary confinement, you're, you're locked up all by yourself, and it's for the most violent and dangerous, and it's the, pump, the punishment that's worse than being incarcerated. And there were some FBI agents that were interviewed that said this technique is one of the worst forms of torture because it's so painful and psychologically brutal that can it actually cause a person to die. Solitary confinement can kill a person because it destroys our humanity. And so I don't know how much I need to press this, this reality of the neglect of this topic, but I think I've, I've demonstrated to you, uh, you know, through a few surveys and things, but just look at your own heart, look at your own life, look at your own experiences, and know that the chief joys in your life were when you had someone who cared about you and someone you cared about, someone you could share your joys and sorrows with. And the most difficult times in your life are when you felt most alone, most isolated, uh, most confined, and when you felt that there was no one who was looking out for you, concerned about you, or, or caring about you. And so when you leave your life in that kind of isolation, uh, it's, it's important to understand that there's there's solutions here. The Bible has something to teach us about the centrality of this issue of friendship. So let's move there next. So let's talk about the need for friendship. So it's something that's been neglected, but it's something that we need. And I want to show you that it is the chief end of man in a sense because it is 
tied deeply into the storyline of the Bible. Okay, Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I think that could be a thematic verse for at least one of the threads that drives us through the Scripture. So go with me to Genesis 1, and we'll study the whole Bible. So in Genesis 1, God makes, let me summarize, everything, okay? He speaks the whole world into existence. And God calls the world, if you look at Genesis 1, he calls the world good. And he repeatedly calls it good. In other words, God made the world in glorious perfection as a overflow of who God is. And as God makes all things... He moves towards the crown of creation, which was not the sea creatures, and it is not the water swarming with things, though they were fruitful and multiplied. Uh, The living creatures, the cattle, verse 24 of chapter 1, the beasts of the earth. But it's verse 26 where the crown of creation is featured. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they'll have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over every living thing that creeps on the earth. He gives them the plants to be their food and the beasts of the earth and the the birds of the sky and everything that creeps. He gave life to and showed them that this was a world that he made for the habitation and experience and dominion of mankind. And summarized in verse 31 of chapter 1, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, as that is looked at, zoomed in on in chapter 2, we're shown that there's a problem in this perfect world. And it's hard to think about that because how is a perfect place with no sin, no rebellion, How is a perfect place have a deficiency in it? And there's a deficiency built into this perfect world to highlight something that is so important for the furtherance of this world and the telling of this story that God is telling through the creation and eventually through its redemption. So look with me now at this amazing problem in a perfect world, a problem in a perfect world. So, verse 18. Then Yahweh God said, it is not good. Now that phrase is in contrast to all the good, 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 good that God had uttered over his creation. There's something in this good place that is not good. And look at what it says it was. For the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And in this really cool, I think, moment in creation, it's so Narnia, in verse 19, Yahweh God brings all the creatures to the man. After pronouncing his loneliness being 
not a good thing in a good world. He then has some kind of parade of creatures. And if you have an Instagram like my wife's Instagram, you have a parade of creatures, puppies and river otters and beautiful creaturely things that she likes, baby animals that will go up the Instagram. Uh, my Instagram is all smoked meat, so it's animals later. <laughs> the later use of animals. But he, he had this, Adam has this experience, right, where, where the creatures are passed before him, and it's to show Adam that these are not sufficient companions for him. And though a dog is man's best friend, there's something that a, that a dog doesn't provide for a man. There's something that a, a rhinoceros doesn't provide, a giraffe doesn't provide. All the beauty and, and panoply of God's creation are insufficient for Adam. And it says, Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. And so Yahweh God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And Yahweh God fashioned the rib, which he had taken from the man, into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Please note that at this point in the story, there's no such thing as a father and the mother. This is, this is all uh, forecasting the creational theology for man to understand why he was created by God and then given others to be with him. And now I, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you're, you're thinking that your series talking to you. You're, you're also thinking that, well, Duncan, this isn't, this isn't friendship on display that you're, you're highlighting here. This is marriage, right? And you know that this passage is about marriage. And Adam and Eve were, you know, married. And is that the answer to the loneliness problem? But I don't see marriage in this passage presented as an end to itself. Because marriage, when you understand what it is in Ephesians 5, is actually a means to something greater than itself, right? Ephesians 5 talks about marriage being a picture or a display or an illustration of the gospel. And the gospel is a reconciliation of God and man, holy God, sinful man, because of the cross of Christ, bringing those in enmity, those who are at odds, together in some kind of relationship. What's underneath this picture that we usually think of this description for a wedding or for the relationship between a husband and a wife, and it is that, is something that's fundamental to not only marriage, but to human society and the most important aspect of marriage. And you could argue, because it says, just like the animals were told to go forth and multiply, that the man and the woman were supposed to fill the earth and, and multiply, and they knew each other in that way, and they had lots and lots of babies that would fill the whole earth. But the key there, again, isn't just progeny. It's not just they had kids or they had a, a physical relationship. The, the idea behind this is that Adam was alone, and then he had Eve, and then there was two of them, but two of them was insufficient, not only to display what God intended to display, but he wanted them to have more people, 
which would make not just a family, because by Genesis chapter 11, there's all kinds of families that have come from this first family, and they form what we would see today as not just a bunch of different families, but as uh, the entirety of human society is what comes out of this, this relationship. And that's the key word is relationship. So even the being fruitful and multiplying, though, is a key part of marriage, and it's important and underlined in this passage, companionship and Adam's insufficiency and need for a wife and the, the badness or the imperfection of being alone is what's being highlighted here, not just a need to have more inhabitants, but for these inhabitants to be in some kind of societal relationship to each other. And so Adam needed a companion, and his companion needed other companions, and that's where this most intimate of friendships, marriage, starts to unfold and show us that it leads to other horizontal relationships that will define all of human society. The Song of Solomon You're not allowed to read it until you turn 18. (laughs) Chapter 5, verse 16, the bride says this, This is my beloved and this is my friend. Marriage is not a utilitarian relationship to make more people. It's to make more people that relate to the people in society, in community. Yes, they'll fill and populate the entire world, earth, but not in a utilitarian sense alone. They will form companions and friends and families and towns and communities and eventually societies and nations that will be marked by the necessary relationship that flows from not one, but many. And so animals weren't enough And apparently, Adam's relationship with God was also not the answer. So, a relationship with God is not final, full, and complete without relationships with others. Because Adam had God. He had perfect fellowship with God. But God wanted Adam to have another that he could relate to. And not just him and her, otherwise their making of a family would have been unnecessary. And so the the multiplication of human society is what I'm trying to highlight and display here for us. God is sufficient, but God made us to enjoy him and his sufficiency as creatures who need and relate to one another. And as we experience God in relationship to other people and the pleasure we derive from knowing God and being a restored relationship to him isn't intended to be experienced in isolation. And so we could skip way forward in our story, but we're not there yet, to the New Testament and look at all the times that the Bible reminds us to our responsibility to one another that the Bible reminds us that salvation is best displayed in a community called the church, that salvation isn't to be seen merely individualistically. Yes, you must be saved if you want your sins forgiven, if you want to be made right with God, if you want God's rightful justice to not end on your head in judgment, but to be taken from you by Christ the Savior who died in your place. You need individual salvation, but that individual salvation is 
enacted in something called the elect, in something called the church. And so we don't treasure God over friendship. We treasure God with and through and in friendship. Does that make sense? And and so I'm trying to... There was not a lot of answer when I said, does that make sense? Um, (laughs) Salvation isn't something that's just for one person. It's a community of people that God saves. And this comes down to another thing in this passage. When we pursue the true God-honoring kind of friendship, we do it because of what is another truth that underlies this, which is God made us like himself, okay? God made us like himself in, in our image and likeness. Remember in Genesis 1? In our image and our likeness. You see, the, the reason, the ultimate reason that friendship matters so much is because God is a God of friendship. Because if something is ultimately and theologically true, it's, it's also true outside of creation in God. We get theological for a moment. In other words, friendship matters so much because God is a God of friendship and because we're made, according to Genesis 1, in the image and likeness of God, and there's all kinds of speculation about exactly what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Is it volition? Is it affection? Is it, is it many different things? But I think in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, when God said in Genesis 1, 26, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, not in my image or my likeness, but our image, the theology behind that, as the rest of the Bible explains, is that God is a communal being. He's one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God is that way for all eternity. He, he in his existence, is three persons. It wasn't like Jesus came in the manger and God was like, nice to meet you, I needed a friend. In eternity past, God lived in triune perfection. He lived in an eternally existent Trinitarian perfection. God's three in oneness is who God is and who God has always been. Before he ever created anything, he was eternally happy and existent in himself. And because God is a God of triunity, he's a God of community and love. And when he said, let us make man in our image, one of the ways we're made in God's image, which has been called by theologians our witness or our communal nature, You are not made to be alone because God is not solitary. Love is within God's trinity. The Father eternally loves the Son. The Son eternally loves the Father. The Father eternally loves the Spirit. The Spirit eternally loves the Son and the Father. And when the Bible says God is love, it's talking about the triune love inside of the Godhead where God enjoys and loves himself in Trinitarian perfection. Edwards, when he talked about this, talked about the the fountain that is the love and perfection of God as he relates to himself overflowing and that being the chief cause of creation. It is no fault, a fountain that it's prone to overflow is Edward's words. And so when God made people, we reflect the beauty of God's love and our love for one another. That, I think, is the most cardinal way that we're made in God's image. And I think that explains why we long for friendships. We long for relationship because you didn't come from just monkey village. You didn't come from, you know, primordial stew or whatever. You came from God and you long for friendship because you're made in the image of God. And the less you think about the significance of friendship, the less you think like God. 
God's image is reflected in the beauty of human relationships and friendships that love each other and bring glory to God, that encourage each other and help each other and carry one another's burdens and commit to one another in prayer and encourage one another to Jesus. Uh, The fact that you are a person made by God, every single one of you is a person made by God means that you need to have a deeper and more God-centered definition of friendship. Lewis, of course, C.S. Lewis 600 times. You tell me C.S. Lewis didn't believe in something, something. You know what? I'll quote C.S. Lewis even harder. (laughs) C.S. Lewis in the book, The Four Loves, which one of you borrowed from my office, give it back. (laughs) I had a team of interns looking for that book today. I couldn't find it. So I had to Google it up. To love at all. This is from C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. It's a, it's a weird read. It's, it's about mythology, and C.S. Lewis was an Oxford Don. Deal with it. This is what he says. I love this. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements, modern word. Look it up, lock it up, lock it up, safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. He goes on to say, the only place outside heaven where you'll be perfectly safe from all dangers and contributions of love is hell, because hell is a place of isolation. You see, love and and Godward living and holiness all involves friends, companions, others. You need them because like you, they are made by God in his image and likeness. This is the great need of friendship. The the story of the Bible continues on because God makes friends. He initiates friendship with all kinds of humanity. He initiates a relationship with a man named Abraham. And when he does, call this moon worshiper, and I'll go fast through the rest of the Bible because we didn't make it very far just now. When he initiates this relationship with Abraham, he makes him a a triangular promise, right? That he will bless Abraham and that Abraham will be the father of many nations, that Abraham will be in this covenant relationship with God, that Abraham will be blessed of God and that God will uh, appoint him in in this relationship that involves not just Abraham, but Abraham's offspring and how that offspring will relate to the entirety of the human population. That's the Abrahamic covenant that God ensures with his friend Abraham. That relationship will flow to create the nation of Israel. You see, the nation of Israel uh, would be in this covenant, this 
this loyal agreement, this relationship, this contractual is such a dry word, but if you've ever gotten married before, maybe some of you have, or you've thought about it, or you've watched a rom-com, you know that before the big day where you got a dress and a rental tux, you have to go to Van Nuys. To Van Nuys, of all places. Van Nuys. And you got to go get in line. And I think you need an appointment. I don't remember. I went to Bernalillo County, just different. Bring a knife if you go to Bernalillo County. You think Van Nuys is scary? I'm from New Mexico. Uh, so you go there and you do paperwork to get married. All manner of paperwork. They give you manila envelopes and stuff. You pay a fee with a check, old school, to get married. Contract isn't the right word. Covenant is what you're making, and covenant is what God made with Israel. It was this inviolable kind of relationship that had loyalty in it and boundaries in it and commitment in it. And when God made it with Abraham and therefore with his people, he knocked Abraham out to look like Adam in the garden when he took the rib. He puts Abraham to sleep and causes God to pass himself through this covenant thing as fire through animals. Don't get into all the details, but it was it was God ensuring that this marriage with Abraham, which was his relationship with Israel, would be inviolable, unbreakable because of God's commitment to relationship with his people. And as the story of Israel unfolds, when it is most violated by Israel, they never ultimately are cut off from God because God won't break his word to himself. But when he indicts them for their sin, do you know the metaphor he uses? He calls them adulterous. He tells them that they were cheating on him, that they weren't faithful to him. And it's because God sees his people in light of relationship. I mean, this this whole story as it unfolds in the Old Testament is a story of God's love for his creation reflected in the beauty of human relationships. I mean, you can... You can go all kinds of places with this, but let me, let me do a fast summary here. We could go all the way forward to Jesus, who didn't come in a spaceship. He didn't, like, come down. Like when I saw Bono when I was in college, best day ever. And the, it, Bono descended in this thing shaped like a lemon over the stage, and it opened... And Bono and the Edge came out all shiny. It was Pop Mart, not their best work. But they, they went out and they descended as from space. That's not how Jesus came. Jesus came in humanity, right? He was one of us. He was born of a woman. And that's why he's the second Adam, 
because the first Adam took the whole race into sin and alienation from their relationship with God. Jesus takes his followers, his disciples, his people, his covenant progeny into salvation. And so sometimes we call Jesus the second Adam because he's fully human like Adam. And Jesus, being fully human, had the same kind of needs that humans have. And that's not just food and air. It's friendship. And when you study the life of Jesus, who was part of this covenant community of Israel, Jesus is surrounded by his people, guys and girls who who followed Jesus, who walked with him and talked with him and marveled at his power and listened to his teaching and hung on his every word and would eat their meals together with Jesus and they would see Jesus' love for them in ways that were tender and kind. And, And there was times when they barely understood Jesus. They weren't great friends to him, but he was good to them, always good to his friends. Maybe my favorite portrait of Jesus' display of friendship is in John 11, when his friend, the text says, Lazarus dies, and Jesus weeps for him before Jesus raises him from the grave. I mean, there's genuine tears there, and I think so much of those tears are for the plight of the human race and what Jesus knew he was about to endure on our behalf, but there's certainly highlighted in John 11, an emphasis on Jesus's friendship with Lazarus, his his companion, his friend. It was an act of compassion for Jesus to raise the brother of these sisters from the dead. We sang tonight some, some lyric about the garden in one of those songs. You remember that? It was some garden lyric. It was talking about Gethsemane, that darkest and hardest and, and loneliest part of Jesus's life. And enduring the wrath of God was the chief object of his pain and suffering. But how often in Gethsemane, we just did this in Mark last year, right? What's Jesus' chief complaint? Besides, let this cup pass for me, which is him saying, God, do I have to go through with it this way? His chief complaint in the Garden of Gethsemane in Jesus' darkest hour of temptation is what? Where's my friends, right? He's like, Where's the, where are you? Could you not stay with me? Could you not pray with me? I mean, if Jesus, the perfect God-man, is in need of his associates, his companions, his, his friends, his dear ones, and if that is adding further breaking to his heart in the moment as he anticipates the wrath of God, which is an, is an act of alienation on God's part that is going to be this, this unthinkable and impossible violation of triune relationship. Again, a straining of divine friendship. Jesus is abandoned on a human level at the same time because Jesus is God and God is a God of friendship and relationship. And this whole universe is built with this story, a cosmic story of friendship that starts with the Trinity, begins in the Garden of Eden with the creation of Adam and Eve, then goes on through God's friendship with the people he calls Israel, then moves into the incarnation where Jesus becomes a man and has real demonstrable friendships and relationships, closeness with a certain group of his disciples, uh, namely the, the three, Peter, James, and John. And when Jesus 
is approaching his death on the cross in John 15. In these final moments of his life, he defines his death on the cross as an act of friendship. And then when Jesus would, would rise from the grave, it's his friends, his disciples, his followers who would preach his resurrection. And those same apostles following the book of Acts would die together, strengthening each other as martyrs and friends. This summer we were in Rome. I went to Rome, and I went to the maritime prison, and it's the place outside of, of the, uh, the forum, the, the Colosseum, the forum, you know, all the center of Roman government, which was the center of the whole civilized world, the most powerful empire the world had ever known at this point, and there's a prison that's a hole in the ground that Peter and Paul were both incarcerated in. And and we sat in it all dank and dark in there, and it was raining a little bit, and it was dripping a little bit, and it was wet a little bit. And I I read to the kids uh, 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, his will and testament. And in it, he's he's talking about, he knows the end is there. He's saying things like, I I fought the good fight, I finished the faith, I, I finished the race. I, 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 uh, I don't remember what the Bible says, but you, you know. So Paul is, is doing this like end-of-life testimony, right? Fought, finished, kept. That's what it is. Let's <laughs> get the verbs. Fought, finished, kept. And then in this really human moment in his last will and testament before he gets his head chopped off, the apostle Paul longs for relationships. He longs for companionship. He speaks tenderly of Mark, a guy who who betrayed him and and then they reconciled. He wants his coat because he's cold. He wants some parchments, but he longs for his friends. And all the apostles, all the early Christians would strengthen each other as they died for their witness for Jesus. And the age of the church marches on with stories of friendship that strengthen believers in their darkest days and bring them joy on their sweetest days and remind us that our God is a God of friendship who built the universe that's reflective of Trinitarian love and friendship. And my friend, tonight, if your heart longs for friendship, if this, if this talk tonight hurts your heart because you you know this isn't a part of your life like you want it to be. Or you know that you have friends who are the worst and who don't encourage you and are not reflective of how God would have them be in your life. I want you to know something. It's because God made you that way. This isn't something broken in you. This is something aching in you. And God has a way for this to be fulfilled and fixed. And so it's our goal in these, these, these weeks and these Friday nights in July coming up that you wouldn't accept cheap substitutes when it comes to friends. Because the reason people go after prostitutes and the reason people are in abusive relationships and marriages and the reason people have friends who treat them so bad is they're trying to fill that aching and longing, that that dry sponge that needs that human relationship and love and affection and accountability and encouragement, but they fill it with this acidic and awful version that the world offers. 
And you need to know that that longing in your heart is something that God put there. And so you wouldn't accept cheap substitutes. You wouldn't let those who will steal your joy into the most intimate parts of your heart. And so we want to help you this month evaluate your friends, either your, the ones you have or the ones you don't have, your prospective friends, your, your hopeful friends, and help you see those relationships according to God's word. Because it's better to have one good and godly friend than a hundred friends that will walk with you to hell. And so that's where we'll go next week. I'm going to have somebody talk to you. I've got a few candidates, and I've asked them, and they've pushed back. But I, I keep asking because of the thing in the Bible about the persistent widow. You know what she was? A friend. So I'm still knocking. And if they won't do it, I'll do it. But I, next week I want to look at all the negative stuff the Bible says, especially the Proverbs about bad friendships. And I think you're going to be overwhelmed with it and greatly helped by it. And then I want to look at how to be a good friend in our third week. And then finally, I want to look at like the big picture of how, how God and the gospel kind of come together in friendship on our fourth week. So that, that's where we're going with this thing. So I, I hope that's helpful. I, I, want you to, I want you to lean into this, especially those of you who are who are just profoundly lonely, and maybe you're not willing to say that or tell anybody that, but you feel isolated. I want you to know that these Friday nights are for you to help you and that God and God's people are intended to meet this need. And I want to show you how to go about that because it doesn't work to just come to the basement and go, friend! So I think there's some coaching that can happen. First with the negatives, like here's how not to be a friend. And then with positive, here's how to be a friend. And then we'll look deeply at friendship with God, okay? Let me pray for you. God, I know some in this room have been disappointed by their friends, and some feel profound loneliness, and some have tons and tons of friends, but no real friend that is there to help them and encourage them to follow Christ. So God, would you use your word? And would you use your spirit in this month where we think about this topic to help us understand this truth? And more than anything else, to know that there is a friend who we have in heaven who pleads for us and who will be closer to us than any other person, but who has made us to have friends and relationships that will help us get to him. So be with us, God, as we study your word and think about true friendship in Jesus' name. Amen.